0: podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. If you have your Bibles, would you open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? We started chapter 10 last week, and we're going to finish up chapter 10 this week. Lord willing, right? There's a constant nagging question that has been with believers for as long as there have been believers is this, just how far can a Christian go in participating in the activities of the world, (laughs) especially in social functions? What is a believer free to do and what is a believer not free to do? Like I said, the, the forever constant nagging question, right? Christ followers, we know this much anyway, our aim is to become imitators of him, amen? amen. In all that we do. Their testimony, our testimony to the relationship with Jesus is to be considered... More important than our Christian rights, which will, I believe, help lead to rejecting anything that would hinder this testimony, our Christian testimony. Now, here's the deal. Let me just start off right off the bat making this statement. We are well aware of what I just got through saying. Are we not? I didn't say anything to you that was. A (laughs) newsflash. We are well aware of that. Yet, isn't it mind-boggling how that eludes us most of the time? (laughs) Come on. How what eludes us? That all that we do (laughs) is to bring our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, glory as we lay down our own personal rights for the sake of others, for the sake of his kingdom, for his name's sake. We're aware of that. But isn't it interesting how that eludes us so much of the time throughout a given week, throughout a given day. Now, after some strong warnings to those strong Christians in Corinth against self-reliance and the pursuit of personal rights at the expense of the weak, Paul is going to return to a subject that he has already talked about. The subject with regards to the relationship between sacrificial idol meat and faith. The issue is actually a theological one. It is not that idol meat has evil powers, he's talked about that, but that its use in idolatrous celebrations brings, as we're going to see, the jealousy of God, and it blurs the testimony of one's devotion to the Lord Jesus. So let's pick it up at verse 14 where we left off, okay? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, see are you catching the heart of the apostle paul there that's those are terms of endearment aren't they therefore my dear friends and then he <laughs> he, he really in three words he gets to what he's this whole thing's going to be about <laughs> the hammer comes down flee idolatry i speak to sensitive pe- sensible people judge for yourselves what i say. The Corinthians, even though Paul has already talked about it, would you agree with me that they needed to hear more on this subject? They really do, because they were out there on the edge of Christian faith. They were living dangerously close to the pagan world, having surrounded themselves with all of its temptations. Paul warned that if they kept going in the same direction that they've been going would have begun as a celebration of their freedom and their liberty would end up in regret as well as bondage to sin and the very real possibility, in their case for sure, demonic oppression. It's like Paul is flashing, bright, warm, devastating implications of participating in idolatrous worship. So Paul urges the Corinthians to be sensible people. Judge for yourselves, he says. So it's kind of like Paul is saying in our vernacular, slam on the brakes, (laughs) throw it in reverse, get turned around and leave the idolatrous practices in your rearview mirror. Get out of there is what he's saying. They need to be on the run. Instead of thinking that they're just having fun in <laughs> what was going on in Corinth. The urging is given for a very real reason. Everyone worships something or someone. Amen? Everyone worships something. Or someone, even if that someone isn't the Lord God. The word idolatry means both the worship of the false gods and the failure to have a right relationship with God, the one true God. Any person who does not worship God is worshiping some idol in some way, shape, or form. Folks, you might want to sit there and think, eh, I, don't, I don't know about Dave, and deny that. But it's how we've been built. It's how we're wired to worship. And if it's not God, that emptiness, that void will get filled with something or, as I've been saying, someone. In practical terms, an idol is anything that consumes a person's mind, heart, soul, body, time. And I'm even going to throw in another wallet. It is that to which a person gives their self. Consider this with me. If we are to run from idols... To whom do we run to? Well, we know the obvious answer, don't we? To God, of course. But in that answer, church, lies the fact that this stresses a crucial point. The only way, then, to escape any form of idolatry is to be nearer to God. (laughs) Make sense? Yeah. If we don't fill our hearts with devotion for God... Something else will, which will inevitably lead to idolatry. Paul's warning packs a punch. Flee from idolatry. Now, I want you to hear that this is not suggesting a casual, nonchalant turn and a slow stroll away. <laughs> no. But a quick Urgent, turning and running away from it because it's danger playing with fire, if you will. And so Paul's urging here, I want us to make sure we understand this as well. It is not one of legalism, folks. It is one of wisdom. Amen. Wisdom, wisdom that we need in these times in which we are living. And so Paul is hopeful that reasonable people will agree with what he writes in this passage, in this section here. Because what he writes provides a strong, amazing case for fleeing from idolatry through some rhetorical questions that he's going to be asking regarding two things, two two examples, the Lord's Table, Communion, and the nation of Israel. He's not done using them as an example as we saw last week. And Paul shows the Corinthians how idolatry can bring spiritual disaster. Okay. So let's continue and he's going to be showing us here as he's developing this case and it's just its just amazing what Paul does. He's just so brilliant how the Holy Spirit inspires him to put this together. He's going to present to us now the, what I'm calling the principles of oneness, okay? So verse 16 through verse 18. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Paul goes from talking about actual physical meat into spiritual meat, the Lord's Supper. Now, if you have the NIV and some of the other translations, modern translations, like the one I have, it, the word communion doesn't show up, but it does. Three times. If you have the New King James Version, I think it's there. Communion. The word that is like the NIV has is participation. When you go to the, look at the original language, be it the, Translated word communion or the translated word participation, you will find the same Greek word, which is, and you guys have heard this word before, kononia. Yeah. And that word means what? Oneness. It means communion. Okay. The culture to which Paul was speaking understood something that we we don't. By and large, for the most part. That is, they looked at sharing a meal as being one of the most relational and friendly expressions possible between two people or group of people. Why? Well, before the days of silverware, <laughs> or if you're at a church potluck, plasticware, right? People would eat reclined around a low table sharing pieces of bread I want you to pay attention now from a common loaf they dipped into a common bowl filled with a stew like sauce therefore because they were eating Of the same bread. Dipping and partaking of the same meat sauce. They believed they were uniquely bonded. Through the common nutrients. That they were sharing. Obviously double dipping was not a problem. (laughs) In the first century. (laughs) As Christians. When we come to the Lord's table. We partake of the same bread and we drink the same drink there's a oneness taking place a connea, if you will between us as well as a oneness and a cononia between us and jesus that's what's happening when we do this israel israel understood the still, even though it's a Greek term, but it was still communion as they would have known it there. For when the Jews offered their peace offerings to the Lord, back in the tabernacle of the wilderness or the temple later on, part of that meat sacrificed would rise to the Lord in smoke. They were able to eat whatever was left. So through the peace offering... They were able to commune with each other in that way and at the same time were communing with Jehovah as they shared the meat together, okay? The Passover meal exemplified the kind of sacrifice of which worshipers ate. We see that in Exodus chapter 12. And the Lord's Supper of the New Testament had its roots, where? From the Old Testament, Passover. We see that in Mark chapter 14. Paul referred the Corinthians to the Old Testament practice of connecting it to the Lord's Supper. For the sake of these Corinthians getting some understanding of what they do not have at this point. Because all believers are in spiritual union with Christ all believers share spiritual union with one another in him okay are we clear now notice what paul has done if you haven't already picked up on this again it's it's brilliant he has beautifully laid the groundwork of communion to show that a similar spiritual effect also took place between demons and the worshipers in the idol temples. As a result, he he is urging, he is pleading with these Corinthian believers, get out of there. You don't know what you're doing. There's a whole lot more going on behind the scenes than what you understand. Verse 19, Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants. It's the same word, konania It says, I don't want you to be in oneness <laughs> with demons. I don't want to be, to you? <laughs> i don't yeah no way now deuteronomy chapter 32 is, has in it what is known as the song of moses it's a long song it's got 43 verses in it <laughs> in the song moses is speaking to two groups of people a new generation that has been born during that 40-year wandering in the wilderness. But he's also speaking to those who were children when they left Egypt, but they've grown up now, and they're still alive, and you know, their parents are gone. They weren't allowed to enter the promised land, but they're going to. So he speaks to them, and he directs their attention to the past and warns for the future after he knows he's going to be long gone, okay? Now, listen to what Moses says in the Song of Moses, as he brings a warning to these Israelites who indeed had a problem with idolatry. We know that, right? We, as we read the Old Testament, and we, we understand what went on for those guys. This is what he says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 16. They made him, being God, jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable Idols. Now listen to this. They sacrifice to false demons. That's what it says. Which are not God. Gods they had not known. I'm going to read a few verses from out of there. Just a few more. God your ancestors did not fear. You, dis- you deserted the rock. Christ was the rock, Right? You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols you think god takes idolatry serious you better believe that he does this is one of the many old testament scriptures that indicate when the people of israel offered sacrifice to idols they actually offered them to demons as we just read so in other words Paul is establishing this truth if such communion takes place in biblical sacrificial meals then in some sense it also takes place in pagan sacrificial celebrations Paul anticipated in objection here at about this point he says did he mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything That's he what he writes here we read that and he says no and he's already said that earlier an idol in and of itself is nothing but demonic entities are indeed connected to idols and this is paul's point back at the corinthians paul had already argued back in chapter eight that pagan religions are false and that their sacrifices are not made to true gods that many so-called gods existed and at that point he i think was already at that point referring to demons so they exist and in these verses he explains his meaning more fully pagans are greatly mistaken about sacrifices to their so-called gods, little g. But something otherworldly is involved. Paul is teaching, admonishing, urging the sacrifices of pagans, as he says, are offered to demons. And so unlike the pagans and the unknowledgeable Christians in Corinth, Paul realized that pagans do not sacrifice to great gods whom Christians should fear. In this sense, the meat and the idol are nothing, as we've just got through saying, because the sacrifices of pagan celebrations are made to real demons, and Paul insisted, because they are, Paul insists that the Corinthian believers Not be participants. Don't get into a oneness with demons. Verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy or are we stronger than he? Paul makes it clear that idols, the idols the Corinthians are now tempted to worship are not real but do represent a real entity, demonic. Therefore, participating in ceremonies and meals for pagan idols is having fellowship, Paul says, with devils. Folk, I think you would agree with me, demonic activity is still alive and well in America. Not to mention around the world. I don't think any wise Christian would deny the demonic influence on television Movies, magazines, and, of course, the Internet. The wickedness connected to these sources is off the charts. Amen? And blatantly irreverent. Not too far from where I live, on Highway 340... There's a property, and right out near the road, the people who own that property have this great big gigantic Buddha sitting right out there. Some of you have seen it. <laughs> now, my reason for even mentioning that, because some of you are sitting here right now thinking, I don't have any idols in my house. I don't have no Buddha on my shelf. No idols exist in my house. Yeah, they do. They're parked in your garage. You walk into them. You call them your home, your toys, your hobbies. We've got them. Now, the point that I want you to make sure you do not miss is, I know you're thinking, okay, maybe, maybe I've got a little bit too much I asked someone the other day, how do you like your F-150? The response, I love it. <laughs> and I, I know that we just kind of use that phrase, but, <laughs> right? <laughs> and we're thinking, well, but they're not demonic. The point it, that Paul is making The stuff that we begin to engage in may not be initially, but if it is something that is going to take the place of God in your life, that makes it demonic. Are you with me? You open yourself up to stuff you really do not want in your life. It will take you down a road you do not want to go down if you don't realize the danger of any form of idolatry, of any way, shape, or form, allowing something to take the place of God in our lives. I heard a preacher say the other day something like, we take things that are good and let them become more important than what is best. And when we do that, we replace God because he is what is best. Something good takes the place of what is best and then eventually ends up becoming bad. You see what I'm saying? And that's what Paul is trying to get across to these people. It's what God's word is trying to get across to us. It is... Something we need to be very, very aware of. And then Paul says, you think you're stronger than God? That's directed to the believer who thought they were strong, who were sure they could enjoy their liberty, their freedom in the pagan temple, and not be harmed one bit. Oh, how wrong they are. He says, you may be stronger than your weaker brother. This is what Paul is insinuating. You might be stronger than your weaker brother, but you are not stronger than God. And since you're not stronger than God because you're not God, you know what that means? That means you're not strong enough. (laughs) No matter how strong you think you might be. And so like fire and water, Satan and Jesus don't mix. Paul is saying you can't Have the cup of thanksgiving and the cup of demons at the same time. Can't do it. They don't mix. He never did. God, you know, won't tolerate split loyalties. He didn't with Israel, and he doesn't today, folks. Amen? Amen. When it comes to us splitting our loyalties between the one true God and idols, whatever that might be, Our God is rightly a jealous God at that point. Rightly so. And that is one fact we must never, ever forget. Now, why is he jealous? When we get jealous, it's because we feel threatened. That's not the case with God. (laughs) The Lord's jealousy, however, is entirely different he's not jealous of other gods he's jealous for you and me in other words the lord isn't jealous over pick squeak demonics <laughs> demons they're not a threat to him because he's god but he's jealous for us he doesn't want to see us destroyed or in harm's way, in any kind of way. So God will do whatever is necessary to bring us back to where we need to be. And so Paul addresses in these next verses we're going to be looking at where we need to be. And where we need to be is in a place where we are understanding and living out the principle of being responsible with the freedom that God has given to us. Freedom must be balanced with responsibility, church, which is seen in our love for one another. (coughs) Paul reiterates a well-known Corinthian slogan that he first mentioned back in chapter 6. Look at verse 23 with me. I have the right to do anything you say But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. There is a measure of truth. I mean, let's admit there is some measure of truth in the slogan that Paul had just mentioned that was a Corinthian slogan. Christians have much freedom in Christ. I'm thankful for that, aren't you? So that part is true. Yes, the slogan must be balanced, however, with practical application. Paul did so with the qualification that not everything is beneficial. You might be free to do a whole lot, but not everything is good to do. Not everything is constructive. In line with his previous discussion of the importance of love and humility toward others, Paul made the meaning of these terms even more clear here in chapter 10. No one should seek their own good. Doesn't say some of you. Doesn't say just the strong, forget about the weak none of you should seek your own good but the good of others. In other words, freedom in Christ must be balanced by a desire to build up and benefit other believers. The body of Christ. A direct contrast, wouldn't you say, to the, hey, what's in it for me mentality? That is so rampant in our society today. You may have freedom to participate in a particular activity, but what will it do for your brother or your sister who is watching and listening? Will their faith be compromised if they follow in your footsteps and do what you're doing? Verse 25. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Concerning sacrificed meat purchased at the meat market, Paul gives the following advice. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake verse 25 in other words if we treat the meat as simply a harmless creation of God the earth is the Lord's right and the fullness thereof purchased in a neutral environment verse 26 then it does not involve Paul is saying idolatry and immorality question number one in verse 27 is where that is dealt with it does not cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble a second question found in verse 28 and it glorifies God when the food is received with thanksgiving a third question that he presented in verse 30 but then with regard to sacrifice eaten at an unbeliever's home okay, you got this one way of looking at it when you it's you buying the meat at someone's home An unbeliever's home, verse 27, Paul says that if the unsaved host does not mention where the meat came from, believers may eat freely. If the one serving the guests makes a point that the meat was sacrificed to idols, verse 28, then he is likely to be viewing the meal as an extension of his own devotion to a pagan god. In that case, Paul is saying, for the sake of the Christian's testimony and the conscience of the weaker believers, the Christian should humbly, politely as possible, abstain from eating the food. Ultimately, as we've seen a number of times now, Christians should be willing to set aside their right To exercise Christian freedom for the sake of fellowship with God and with one another, which is plain to see in the next verses. Look at verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Wow. The underlying reason for giving up liberty is the responsibility to display God's love. Can you buy into that, church? (laughs) The responsibility to display God's love. As he brings to a close this important passage in dealing with questions with regards to Christian liberty, Paul gives three questions. To ask ourselves regarding our activity, our lives, our behavior, our attitudes. First, can I thank the Lord in it? Verse 30. Second, will God be glorified through it? Verse 31. Third question, will someone be tripped up by it. Verse 32, don't cause anyone to stumble. And so as a result of the consistency with which Paul lived, what he preached, he was comfortable, completely comfortable, encouraging the Corinthians to follow his example as he followed the example of Christ. Paul encouraged the Corinthians to remember the Lord's great sacrifices as the perfect model of love and concern for others. Perfect model. Every day, we who are followers of Christ are faced with decisions. Every day. Not simply between right and wrong, but between, as I kind of mentioned and alluded to a little bit ago, good, better, and best. God has given us a world filled with beauty for us to enjoy. He, He has. But how do we determine where to draw the line between delighting in his gracious provision and overindulging in selfish, sinful desires. We'll look again at verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all. For the glory of God. All things. Big things. Small things. Everything done. With God's glory. As our focus. At church. At home. In the neighborhood. At the workplace. And even for those of you. Who are living out your retirement. All things. Whatever you do, consider it a service to your one and only Lord God, the sovereign one. He owns it all anyway, right? (laughs) Your life, your time, your gifts, your talents, your energy. It's all on loan from him. Are you living with that truth in mind? Father, we come before you this evening and I think everyone here would agree that idolatry is an issue. And it may not be because we've got some false graven image sitting on our mantle in our living rooms. But we do struggle was stuff. And basically, I think it'd be safe to say anything on the planet has the potential of becoming an idol because of what we do with it and what our thoughts become of it. I ask God that you help us guard our hearts, that we would not be foolish to think that, hey, I can handle it, But may we come running to you as we flee all shapes, sizes, and forms of idolatry, recognizing that it's dangerous and we don't want to be there. No way do we want to connect ourselves in any kind of oneness with the demonic world. For idolatry is where that leads eventually because it replaces God and because we were built to worship God may our hearts be given to you solely completely belonging to you Lord making you number one all the time in how we live and how we love and how we serve you Jesus this is our prayer I ask it in your name Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit WellspringofLifeChurch.com.